0: Cinephile. Cinephile, Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. cinephiles. Oh my goodness, Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. Oh, this is incredible. Trouble, Moonlight oh, wow. one best picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke.
1: It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And
0: music is one of those great tools that brings us together. Alright. There's baseball in World War II. It's kind of <laughs> a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Virk Movie Podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. open. Because Matos needs you to be charitable toward his performances, or barring that, he needs you to be stoned. Many will oblige. Joshua Rothkopf of Time Out, that's his review, of Mandy, Nicolas Cage's new film. As you heard in the open, you heard Nicolas Cage talking uh, that was when I interviewed him at Sundance of this year, and he was promoting the film Mandy, which is now at last in theaters. Much to the joy of Rick Passmore, who well, I knew would be all over it. Ricky's review, a little more tepid, though, than one might think. Get give my review as well. Plus, Michael Moore's new documentary, Fahrenheit 11.9. One of the reviews we've been doing this week. Plus, I remember what movie I said last week that I saw and that I couldn't remember because it was awful. I'll tell you all about that. One of the worst movies of the year. In addition to that, Mario Van Peebles is our special guest. That's right. New Jack City. He goes deep, tells some great stories about that classic gangster film as well as his new film, Armed, which you can check on iTunes, Amazon, et cetera. And, of course, going to spread the love to my man, Ben Lyons. Check out his podcast, Lion's Den, on Podcast One. I've listened to a few of them now. Robert Davi was excellent. If you're a big Sinatra fan like me, he told some good stories Uh, He also had Jenna Elfman on recently. He also had Jerry Ferrara, talked a lot of Knicks. Al Hassan was on. uh, And Michelle Gondry, terrific, who is um, the creator of the Showtime new series called Kidding with Jim Carrey. So check out all of Ben's podcasts. Really good. And uh, Gondry was a part of Cinephile two episodes ago. So once again, check out Ben's podcast on Podcast One. And thanks to all those who uh, appreciate the Vertigo review. Dr. Julie Grossman, we have some academia listening, so appreciate that. And also we had a very funny tweet which Rick Passmore passed along. Ricky, do you remember it specifically what the guy said?
2: Not uh, verbatim, but it had to do with you spoiling a almost 60-year-old movie.
0: Yeah, he said, I normally like your podcast, but thanks a lot for ruining the movie. You gave away the entire plot. First of all, I could see how engaged Dan was, so I didn't actually give away the entire plot. The last 15 minutes, 20 minutes, which is arguably the best part of the movie, I did not give away. If you want me to give it away, I can. I will only say this. The best line of the movie is you shouldn't keep souvenirs from a killing. You shouldn't have been that sentimental.
2: He also called you selfish in the tweet,
0: which that's I right, really that's enjoyed. It. That's right. Really selfish, which then led to a, a great barrage of tweets. Uh, ben Mankowitz, our buddy from TC, immediately tweeted, Hey, dude, it's the sled <laughs> reference to Citizen Kane. A
2: people ton started, of spoiler alerts. Yeah, which... people just
0: say, Hey, Kaiser Sose is Kevin Spacey. Um, what were some other ones? Luke is his father. So that was a lot of fun. I see dead people. I see dead people. Somebody tweeted that. Crying game. She's got to, you know, so there we go from there. So there's a lot of, all over the place. It was really good stuff. Cinephile ESPN is where you can follow us on Twitter, and you can see more of that kind of stuff. Before I get to uh, reviews, Neil Everett is our guest reviewer. Out of nowhere, Neil just uh, emailed me. I love Neil. And he just sent movie reviews. He didn't, even, he didn't even offer any like, hope you're doing well, how's the family, how's the kids, just, just boom, movie reviews. Just wrote Juliet Naked. I love Ethan Hawke more often than not, and I really, capitalized, love him in this role. I'm with him on uh, Ethan Hawke. Maybe because I identify with his character's overall exhaustion mixed with good nature and a big heart. Plus, Chris O'Dowd is hilarious and the leading gal, lovely. Operation Finale. Whenever Ben Kingsley was on the screen, I was engaged. I felt nothing from his protagonist, Oscar Isaac. caught the Gandhi factor. Maybe a little something when he got Eichmann to sign the papers. This was an unbelievable story that should have resulted in a much better movie. Mission Impossible. Why do we love Tom Cruise so much when we all know how bat-blank crazy he is? Because he takes us to places that make us forget how bat-blank crazy he is. Black Klansman. Sickening in that it's based on how certain parts of this country thought and still think. And although I thought the Virginia add-on at the end was unnecessary and gratuitous, as good as Washington was, driver steals the show. Remember to always ask for real butter on your popcorn. I wrote back to him uh, and I said I despise Tom Cruise, instituted a personal ban on his work after I saw Alex Gibney's Extraordinary documentary, Going Clear About Scientology. Cruz is aiding and abetting an organization that purports to help but actually promotes considerable verbal and physical abuse towards members who wish to free themselves from its idiotic constraints. His unwillingness to speak out against the barbaric David Miscavige means that I will never spend another dollar in his films, nor will I watch even the films of his which I enjoy, chiefly Magnolia, Tropic Thunder. This is a stance I know you'll appreciate considering your hustle and once taking Kurt Rambis to another coffee shop rather than buy at Starbucks. Neil despises Starbucks with the fury of a thousand men. He did write back, I admire your Tom Cruise stand, and you can now add me to your Cruise-controlled posse. I knew of what you wrote, just because it doesn't resonate with me personally, does not mean I should ignore it. The Starbucks ban remains fully intact. He also has a review of the new film, uh, Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. Kendrick is cute as a button, while Lively is sassy and sexy, almost in a poor woman's Kathleen Turner way. <laughs> in fact, the movie is a poor woman's Gone Girl. I could have waited until I watched it on TV, but my wife was gung-ho. And lastly, he adds, because I can't wait for A Star is Born, I remember the Streisand Christopherson version of Star is Born. It was one of those movies that touched my life for many reasons. I wanted to be K.K., Chris Christopherson. Actually, I wanted to be his character in the movie, minus the dying at the end, or maybe even that was attractive at the time. Glad I grew out of that. Thanks to Neil Everett for helping us out. I don't know if Neil's ever listened to a podcast yet. He, he loves uh, Tracy Letts, and he sent me an email. He goes, I heard you had Tracy Letts in your podcast. I, I did. And he goes, please tell me how I can listen to this. I said, it's incredible. You think of all the stars we get – no disrespect to Tracy Letts, but you would have thought others would have been more appealing. Tracy Letts is where it's at. Speaking of forthcoming guests, I DM'd uh, with our buddy Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight. He will be on Cinephile at some point in future. Uh, he's a big football fan. So we were talking to him during college football, and I told him the trailer for uh, If Beale Street Could Talk is hot fire. And he said, I appreciate that. It won the runner-up prize at the Toronto International Film Festival. The top prize went to Green Room, and we'll be having Mahershala Ali back on the pockets at some point. Texted with him, uh, the Best Supporting Actor, Academy Award for Moonlight. So, Hirsch and Barry Jenkins, both making big news at TIFF. I don't think we have an everyman this week, but I would like to allow Dan Sands to mention the way that he saw, which he was going to write for his everyman, but it's just too uninspiring. Oh, guys, let me tell you. I watched Boondock Saints again. On the train back from Philadelphia. It's not a good movie. I mean it was one of those movies I watched with my high school buddies all the time. And it's this like violent vigilante film. Not good though.
2: There's not worth that... writing
0: I didn't want to invest any more time in the film so I didn't <laughs> didn't waste the time writing anything I just watched football
2: that's the trick of every man like he's got to rewatch something then he has to write about it but
0: if he rewatch rewatches it, it stinks
2: why is he going to defend it he's the every man same same thing with defensive and and I probably would have to do a rewatch on it because that's one of those college films like when you start school and especially when I was in there in 2005 that thing you want to talk about hot fire that was in every film students like I own it I have a blue a DVD of it so like I can I can attest to I was one of the ones caught up in it. But re watching it outside of really outside of like even the acting is good because you've got good actors, rewatching a lot of that, it is it's a it's a first time filmmaker with a first time script, like somehow we got a budget shot in Boston. There's a lot technically wrong with it. There's a lot of really bad stuff that, you know, a lot of angled like line of action changes, things that just pop around. But it's just it's so quotable in a way with certain things i think that's what helped lift it up and uh you know just you got cult icons and ron jeremy plays like some like, kind of schlubby like right-hand man to the <laughs> gangster and 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 uh like again defoe's just you know and here comes a spoiler alert so pause for three two one spoil uh w- willem defoe is a transvestite fbi agent you know, oh, it's just, there's so many weird angles that he's, and, but Defoe, here's the thing. He owns up to it and he runs with it and he is fantastic in the role. It's just a really weird, odd movie and <laughs> just a lot of odd choices done by, uh, I can't remember the filmmaker off the top of my head, but he's one of, and if, and if he ever hears something this, something Duffy. Yeah, Troy, uh, Troy Duffy. <laughs> yeah, and if he ever it. hears this, he'll probably want to come fight us because that's the type of person he is I've read. <laughs> Pretty much what
0: the movie's about, just fighting bad people. Yeah. Pretty much.
2: Well, we're not bad. Yeah.
0: So we skip out on Boondock Saints. Football wins over that one, but maybe another Everyman next time. Michael Moore's new film. If you recall, the last time he had released a movie called Where to Invade Next, I gave it a lukewarm review. I just didn't think it was as inspired as some of his other work and one of Rick Passmore's chief complaints I agree with, which is that I didn't know how much of this information is accurate and that Michael Moore tends to play loosened loose uh, with the facts. Having said that, I thought L119, his new documentary, which is a play on Fahrenheit 911, which is a claimed documentary he made, I think is an excellent documentary. And I part of what's good about it is that, you know, as any documentary, he takes a strong point of view. And you know, going into this, he's just going to eviscerate Donald Trump at every chance he gets. And the first 20 minutes I actually thought was good and that rare for Michael Moore. I thought he showed restraint in not bringing out the carving knives immediately. He more demonstrated just that moment of time when the election happened. And I thought he told it in a fairly dispassionate manner of just how remarkable it really was that Trump's victory is, you know, the greatest upset in political history and showing not only rallies uh, supporting Hillary Clinton, but also Donald Trump and just how confident people were that Hillary was going to win. And he says it's a great dissection. He shows all these different pundits. You know and George Stephanopoulos is like laughing with, yeah if Trump's gonna win yeah like you know when the when, when hell freezes over. And everybody was so uh, arrogant about the fact that Trump wouldn't win It's just amazing to go back to think it's only a couple of years ago, but how everybody thought Trump wouldn't win with the exception of Michael Moore. And there's a clip of him or somebody talking about him on Fox News. I believe it was uh, Megan Kelly at the time who said, yeah, well, Michael Moore is saying, watch out. he thinks Donald Trump's going to election. like yeah, yeah, even the Fox News people are laughing about it. She goes, no, he says. He knows white middle class voters better than anybody, the working class, because they're upset. They're frustrated with the Barack Obama. They're going to vote for Trump. And so Moore is a rare leftist who, who called the election, who said, yeah, I'm certainly coffee's going to win. And uh, it's just amazing, I think, just especially if you're not an American, as I am, and you're watching this unfold. You just see everyone just kind of appreciate this moment in American time. And then, of course, he brings up the carving knives and just starts attacking Trump, which I found uh, very entertaining because Moore, if if nothing else, is an entertaining documentarian. Even if you agree or don't agree with him, he does know how to be an entertainer. And even there's clips of Steve Bannon talking about him saying, well, I don't agree with his politics, but he's obviously a great filmmaker. And Moore's voiceover is like, OK, they're trying to butter me up now. My enemies are trying to get the better of me. And even there's a scene of him when he was with Trump on Roseanne. And he said, this is the important thing about Trump. He knows he's to manipulate the media. He even manipulated me. And the example was that the producers of that show had to go over to Moore and say, listen, uh, Trump now doesn't want to do the show because it's you. So could you kind of go easy on him? Michael Moore's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, just, you know, don't don't completely annihilate him if that's OK. You know, just for the sake of the show. And Moore said, listen, I want to do the show. And obviously, I love Roseanne. So if it's going to help her out, fine. And he said, that's why I got played. Because then when we did the show, I went easy on Donald. Donald made a couple of jokes, made him look good. And now all of a sudden, I'm eating on of the palm of his hand rather than saying the stuff I'd like to say and there's a funny moment even where Trump says something to the effect of, hey, Michael Moore makes great movies. I just hope you never make a movie about me. And they're like, ah, yeah, exactly. Call the skeletons in my closet. And now, of course, that has happened. What I think though is really interesting is that along with the predictability of skewering Trump, Michael Moore takes shots at the left as well, the left side. Uh, he, he attacks Nancy Pelosi for being out of touch. He attacks most Democrats for being far too centrist. And he says that America – Now, this is where I know Ricky might disagree. He, he shows a bunch of facts. I'd love to see more detail on this. But he says that generally Americans are more socialist than you might think. And he puts like on the black and white screen. It's like let's say 65 percent of Americans are pro-choice. 68 um, percent of Americans are pro-gay pro, pro rights. 72 uh, percent of Americans believe in universal uh, Medicare. So, I mean, as he's doing this, I'm like, okay, well, where do these get these results? Where are these stats from? But his point that he's building is that we are essentially a leftist society. And yet, um, currently, we have a very extreme right-wing autocrat as president. And the problem is that the Democrats have swung too far to the right as well. And then what I thought was interesting, he took real shots at Obama – Uh, particularly what happened in Flint. And I thought the strength of the film was the Flint water crisis, which is, for those who don't know, is Michael Moore's hometown. And if you like or don't like his work, I'd recommend Roger me because I think it's a great documentary. It really comes from his heart, and it shows um, the humor and the sadness of what's happened to his hometown and what's happened, unfortunately, in so many of these great cities in the the Midwest is that, you know, the manufacturing sector being decimated, there's just a huge issue of poverty and uh, population droves just leaving away. And he explains how that water crisis was so impactfully, nobody took, took aim at it. And he just shows it. It's stunning that Obama would be so, um, tone deaf to this, but he's speaking there and he asks for a glass of water because he's starting to choke a little bit. And someone goes and gets him a glass of water. He's like, Oh, see, look, and, I, and like, of course, are you kidding? Like you just, you're just completely stomping on the fact that people are dying from the water, that literally if you get lead in your body, there's no cure for this. And he's completely ignoring the fact by saying, look, I can have a water. Like we're figuring this thing out. And you see people there talking, they're going, I voted for Obama. He was my guy, and for that, I was done with him. Like, I, 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 there's no way I'll ever vote for him again. And it's, it's just interesting how, particularly for that region of Michigan, it may have changed the election. Also, because Michael Moore does love a good stunt, he goes to the Michigan governor and has like a big truck of like Flint water, and he tries to go to his house and just spraying his entire compound of Flint water everywhere. He also tries to have a citizens arrest when he goes to the house, pulls out handcuffs, and asks him, he's like, "I'm, I'm here to do a citizens arrest. This guy should be in jail with the things that he's done." So he definitely has those moments of provocation. But ultimately, I thought it was an entertaining documentary. Uh, as Rick is about to say, I, I don't know exactly if all the facts are true, which I don't necessarily know is, is critical for a documentarian because I think you don't have to be even balanced. You're showing your side of things. And clearly, his side of things is a strong opinion. I think he does that in an entertaining manner. Whether or not it's all truthful, I'm not totally sure. I'd have to look up some of this stuff. But I thought if you're a Michael Moore fan – uh, it definitely hits the mark more than it misses. The part where I'm not, well, the reason why it's only three-minute beliefs, the part where I even I thought he bit off more than he can chew, he starts to compare Trump to Hitler. It's been an hour in, he does like a whole ten minutes about the Fuhrer and comparison to Trump, and even I was like, you get a little squeamish there, going, hang on a second, like you annihilated an entire group of people, and I understand you're trying to draw parallels in that you discredit the media and you're an autocrat, and you blame your enemies, et cetera. I'm like, mm. even in the theater, I felt like a little bit, mm. I'm not really sure about this direction he's going in. But listen, Moore's going to
2: take big swings. That's kind of who he is. Yeah, that's one of Michael Moore's flaws with me is as entertaining as he can be, uh, he's been proven time and time again that he fabricates, and he likes to do these stunts. And even uh, you look back to Bowling with Columbine, there's a whole bit about uh, you go to a bank, and you open up a uh, an account and you get a gun and he he conned the the teller into letting him take the gun straight out of the bank like you got it there so you have to take a grain of salt with whatever you're seeing on screen with Michael Moore because at the end of the day he's still a filmmaker I would put that above documentarian but more I would say he's a filmmaker that documents things and and yeah. spews his opinion and the same thing with facts and he likes and he, he likes to screw people over as well so I can't like you know beyond politics I I don't think he's that. Good of a person you've got stories of him uh trying to do stuff with um uh, trey parker and matt stone of south park and interviewing him for bowling for Colin Biden. they wanted to do a uh wanted them to do a cartoon for the thing and he said no we won't do it so he went and f- hired like this really low end, you know team of animators to basically do a copycat of south park to make it look like they did it and parker and stone rightfully were pissed off with what he did and you've got this whole thing about the, uh, the film festival going on right now that he helped found that he's now screwing over the people that helped him do it. And they're trying to get their financial retribution from him. And he's now he's starting to smear campaign them. So there's a lot of stuff with like, like Tom Cruise, like you have a uh, thing with. There's a lot of stuff with Michael Moore that I really don't support, whether or not you agree with him or not. I just don't think he's a very good person. Bam.
0: Mic drop there from Rick Passport. We move on to Mandy, which is a film Rick and I were both fired up to go see. Uh, unfortunately, the schedules did not align. We could go see it together, but um and plus we live in Har- uh, Hartford, so let's. I mean, the movies are not coming here immediately. Thankfully, though, VOD a Nicholas Cage movie on demand. So I saw it on Directv. How did you see it?
2: Uh I actually bought it full price on Vudu. Look at you, fifteen dollars.
0: Yeah, so go check out Mandy. I'm trying so, to support. Well, the first hour of the film is awfully tough to take. I mean, it, it is puts the slow and slow burn, as I've said before, and I admit that there's visual artistry in it. Uh, but it's a bone-thin narrative, and there's just not a whole lot going on, and it was really testing my patience. Thankfully, the second hour is when it gets gonzo, and that's when Nick Cage turns into Nick Cage. And if you're a Nicolas Cage fan, there's a handful of moments which are truly Nick Cagian. one of which is when he cuts this guy's throat. There's blood spurting all over his face, and he starts wickedly smiling and with glee relishing the blood pouring all over his face. Uh, there's also the moment when he wickedly grins at a dead person in the car with him, uh, and there's also, I mean, the line of the year is with Linus Roach, which unfortunately I
2: can't say on the pod. Rick and I both enjoyed it
0: as, <laughs> he's, as he's begging for his life.
2: It has to do with a, a certain provocative act. That's all <laughs> we'll say.
0: <laughs> it's just a great line to be uttered. I mean, listen, if the film had been a pure B movie and just like gonzo mayhem, I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more. I think if the second hour had been the entire movie.
2: Then that's great. Then I just know that's we're what getting, I was in for. We're getting, a, we're getting a B movie that's going to be really ultra violent. When, I'm in. When I saw the trailers and I'm getting the word, I'm like, this is this is one. It's the perfect Nick Cage vehicle. Yeah, it's exactly what he should be doing. But I, yeah, again, you start watching, and I'm watching with my roommate, and he, I figure he'll be in on it. And I didn't think to take it as like a horror film as much either. Yeah. And that's what he asked me. He's like, is this is this a horror movie? Because he doesn't like scary movies. So he's like, is this a horror film? Should I be watching this? Am I going to have nightmares? You know, you're 34 years old, dude. You're fine. <laughs> but he. uh yeah, like that first part we're just watching and it's just – and it's not just – I wouldn't really call it a paper-thin narrative as much as it would just call he's really testing the patience of the audience and allowing you – like somebody on Twitter I think – uh or either on Twitter or on a review I watched uh, equated it to foreplay and said, well, if you can – if you just deal with it, it the payoff is great. But if you're not, if you're not into it, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna be tired by the time you get there and you're not gonna be very, I like the enjoyable. analogy. Don't
0: think it's appropriate, but I do like the analogy. It's I'll not use appropriate for, at all. Use, use it it for just, other films. Yeah.
2: But <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the biggest drawback that, that, and it's literally, I was checking the time code as we're watching going, okay, like, cause it felt, it did feel long. Yeah. And there was one shot where they're waiting for those, those demon monsters on motorcycles and ATVs coming around and they're literally, sitting in the van and one guy's just rolling up a window and rolls it down again and he rolls it up again rolls it down slightly <laughs> cut to a different angle they're still sitting there waiting and then the tone starts to change in these these awesome looking hellraiser type demon monsters they they look like like uh, you know cenobites from like 2010 they look like an updated version of them they come rolling in and then it's just, there's a little back and forth and they got a whole thing like, you know, blood for blood and all this stuff. And like, okay, did we, do we need 10 minutes of van sitting to get there? Could we have just gotten there? And that's the, and I think that's the biggest issue with a lot of people talking is that, uh, they, that's the biggest point of contention. Is it worth sitting through all of that to get to what you want to see or is, pano's just messing with the audience or does he have a point to all this and i think it's i think it's one of the things i've been thinking about a lot since watching it is does this really have like it, it's perfect film school fodder it's it's something that's gonna be examined and talked about and i think it's i think it's gonna be an important film for certain reasons but at the same time first watch of it's like what i really is again i would watch the second hour absolutely from literally from the hour mark on the time code of the film right from that on i will watch that that's why i'm happy i bought it because i will just watch that over and over again that's so great there's a lot of weird stuff that happens in, in near the end as well there's things that just happen that aren't explained and you have to like divulge it i i think i tech when i texted you i equated it to like a von trier film it's just yeah. very surreal and it doesn't seem to have a point so there is probably deeper meaning within it but good lord it's just it takes so long to get there with some of the stuff, but visually it's one of the most daring spectacles I've seen for what they're trying to do with probably how much money they had as well Yeah, uh, cinematically. So, I mean, I, I'm i going to rewatch it. Like, I'm going to have to because I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I'll give it that. So what did, what would, what did you I'm give gonna it? I'm going to give it two Maple Leafs. It does have lots of ambition and visual splendor, and it's a good point. He's
0: doing a lot with – I'm sure it's a very small independent budget, but I just – I can't – Fully reward the film
2: i gave it two and a half of the time but i'm i'm gonna you know hold my opinion to be changed later because yeah. it's one of those things i love i love that second half so much and it's such a slow burn in the first half but the first half looks so good right i don't know how to feel about it so i gave it two and a half tepidly but i'm gonna reserve the right to change my opinion later
0: michael jr is very fired up to see it he, i don't know if he's just a big nick cage fan but he immediately messaged me on instagram can't wait to see it so michael jr maybe we'll get his guest review of mandy at some point the movie that I saw that was absolutely terrible, Race McAdams, Our Girl, Canadian, awful. Disobedience. Just a horrible film. It's um, I don't know if it's based on a true story, but it's about a love affair between two women, which is consummated years after they were denied their feelings. New York photographer Ronit flies to London after learning about the death of her estranged father. Ronit is returning to the same Orthodox Jewish community that shunned her decades earlier for her childhood attraction to Esty, a female friend. Their fortuitous and happy reunion soon reignites their burning passion as the two women explore boundaries of faith and sexuality. Snooze Fest. Rachel Wise is the woman who goes back to see her. Rachel McAdams is the woman who's currently married to Alessandra Nivola, who's like a poor man's Michael Fassbender. The whole time, I'm like, I just kept thinking, they like, couldn't get Fassbender. We'll get this guy who kind of looks like Fassbender. We'll fool people into thinking it's Fassbender. That'll help with the marketing. No, terrible. Just a really boring movie. Budget of six million dollars, and I don't think it made a dime. It came out in April this year. It did get good reviews on
2: Rotten Tomatoes, but I could not have been more bored by it. I'm guessing Rick did not see I have not seen it, but I've read a lot about it because it was hitting festival circuits and yeah. doing very well on that, uh, that aspect, but you called it a snooze fest. Yeah. I think, I think we're learning something about Adnan between this and Mandy, like he does not like Long plotting, uh, drawn out <laughs> run times. He, like, he, he wants you to get to the point and get to it now.
0: Here's Manola Dargas, New York Times. She's a great critic. The emotions are reserved, the pa- the palette muted, and the storytelling restrained in disobedience. Sebastian Lelio's frustrating movie about female desire in a patriarchal religious community. Uh, by the way, if you're you can get into that kind of thing, the big love scene's about an hour into the movie. So even if you're into that sort of thing, I still think it would be a disappointment. I'll leave it at that. Mario Van Peebles up now. A real pleasure here to welcome to cinephile Mario Van Peebles, who has been a terrific director for years now, actor and star as well. And his new film is called Armed. It's available in theaters right now. It's also available VOD, which means video on demand. Mario, thanks so much for the time, man.
1: You are welcome. It's also on iTunes and Amazon, so it's on all the platforms. No excuses. You can go out and rock and roll with this one. <laughs>
0: Which I want to start with, because I think that's interesting. In the past, you know, you always had to go to the theaters, and now you get too many people, and not me, because I love going to the movies. That's my favorite thing, is to go to the movies and to experience that escapism. But now you have people, Mario, saying, well, I'm just going to watch whatever's on Netflix, I'm going to do something else. How important is it now for you, particularly with Armed and these new films, So you know what, I'm putting on every single platform out there, whereas in the past it was just enough to open on 1,500 screens or whatever it was?
1: Yeah, you know, in mean, particular with arms because I did the film independently. You know, you can see you saw the movie, so it's 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 as you could say, it's, it's, like it or not, it's not a watered down film got by committee type of movie. So it's it's definitely a rough rock and roll independent. And for a film like that, you want to be able to reach as many people as you can. And uh, you know, it's not your traditional release pattern, but but especially because there are going to be a lot of young people who want to see it. If they can see it online or, you know, the way they would watch a Netflix, for example, you're, you're going to reach a lot more people. I will
0: right, we'll talk more about Arden in just a second, but listen, I'm clamoring to discuss New Jack City in every single way, shape, or form. You made it for $8 million, a box office of $48 million, Wesley Snipes, ice tea one of the great gangster movies of 1991, and it was your directorial debut. Tell me everything about New Jack City. <laughs>
1: Well, I think the you know I, I there's a couple unusual things about it. One is that you know it, the original script of New Jack read a little more like a like a black Scarface. I wanted to make it more of a multi culty Untouchables because if you wanted people to be able to say no to drugs, you had to have role models to say yes to. So kind of like the Untouchables in that you had Robert De Niro still played the the badass role, but Against Sean Connery and Andy Garcia and Kevin Costner, you had alternative role models to say yes to. And in New Jack City, you had the New Jack gangster played by Nino Brown, uh, Wesley Snipes. Uh, But you also had, uh, you know, Russell Wong and Judd Nelson and Ice-T. And then I mixed it up, you know, so it's, it's, you know, Russell Wong's Asian, Judd Nelson's Jewish, Ice-T's a brother from the street. And then I made the prosecutor a female and, so I like to paint with all the colors. But the other thing in New Jack, which is very rare in a gangster movie, you usually emotionally connect with the gangster, you know, in Godfather, you got a guy with family values and, but he, you know, kills people a little bit now and then, and, you know, but the, the crimes are victimless because you really don't focus on the victim. In New Jack city, I wanted to make it a little more complex and that you, would understand the gangster's truth, you'd understand the New Jack City cop's truth, but you'd also see the victim. And the victim was played by Chris Rock, who keeps getting addicted to crack. So in the middle of the film, when Chris was getting addicted to the drugs, we had people in the audience stand up and say, just say no, fool, just say no. <laughs> so in the context of a gangster movie, to get your audience emotionally connected, not just with the gangster... Not just with the new Jack Cops, but also with the victim. That was a that was something that was, was a tricky thing, but I think it was really welcome and uh and it made the film that much more complex.
0: AFI's ten top ten nominated gangster film and particularly to what you're talking about, here was Roger Ebert's review. He gave it three and a half stars and a four. Truffaut once said it was impossible to make an anti-war movie because the war sequences would inevitably be exciting and get the audience involved on one side or the other. It is almost as difficult to make an anti-drug movie since the lifestyle and money of the drug dealers looks like fun, at least until they're killed. This movie pulls off that tricky achievement. Nino, who looks at the dead body of Scarface and laughs, does not get the last laugh.
1: Yes, and and there's nothing glamorous about the scene with Pookie, i.e. Chris Rock in that alleyway, doing those drugs at all. Um, and in, the, in, in to Armed, for a quick second, to make a film that's a thriller, an action thriller, and yet not have it resolved with guns right. was also a tricky thing. I wanted the resolution of Armed, you know, that he would have to sacrifice his cachet of military weapons or weapons of war, if you will, and fight, using his wits, you, that, that, that the solution and the problem were to some degree both in his head. And so I think that's a very astute observation is that that there's certain things that translate on film uh, very well, and action is one of them. So how do you solve that and how do you do that? Well, you've got to show alternatives. You've got to show your new Jack Cops. You've got to show what mental illness looks like on the inside. You've got to show... Not not soft pedal that crack alleyway with Chris Rock either. So, you know that's that Truffaut is actually hitting it very very right, and that's that's a tricky thing.
0: Armed Right Now is in theaters. It's also iTunes, Video On Demand. It's everywhere. Check out Mario Van Peeble's new movie. One other thought on New Jack City, Mario. How aware are you of the cultural impact? Lil Wayne and Tyga have referred to themselves as Young Nino. Wrestler New Jack got his name from the movie. New Orleans-based rap label Cash Money Records, named after the Cash Money Brothers gang. How aware of you of these things?
1: Yeah, I see that now. That it's interesting to to make a movie that becomes a part of a... The cultural zeitgeist. Um, even my dad's movie, Sweet Feedback's Badass Song, made in 1971, the irony there that, that, you know, that 20 years later in 1991, his son winds up making New Jack City inside the studio system. My dad had to make his movie outside of the studio system. So you see that people embrace it. Now here's an embrace aspects of a film. But here's something that the the Black Panthers pointed out about my dad's film, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. They said Sweetback was a little more complex because it was about a guy, a street hustler, who was starting to go up against the system itself. The movie that came after that, where they turned it into black people acting in the movie, Shaft, the guy is working with the system as a private detective, and then Superfly, the guy's drilling drugs against his own people for the system. So it's kind of an interesting thing is that sometimes the the core of what a, what is revolutionary can be taken out of a film and the icing can be recognized. And, you know, if you look at New Jack City, everyone in that movie who touches crack or deals in crack ends up dead. But still, you know, that for people that are often... Um, left out of certain opportunities. You know, whenever we talk about someone's underprivileged, it means someone else is overprivileged. When you talk about people that are underprivileged, they sometimes embrace the villain or embrace the, the gangster way of life, partly because they don't have a lot of examples of people making a good living living inside the system. I'm lucky in that I make a pretty damn good living as a filmmaker. I send my school my kids to school as a filmmaker and I don't have to do something nefarious to make enough money to do that. But there are a lot of people that don't have that option and for those people um, they're going to embrace sometimes the, the villain or they're going to embrace something about the villain. It doesn't mean that they per se want to do everything the villain does but they, there's something about that villain Or the the gangster that they will find attractive. Just like, you know, kids playing cops and robbers. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go up to be robbers or cops. But there's something about the freedom of that that they find um, intriguing.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really well said. You're right. There's just some of that element of villainy that you just can't resist from. I don't know what's more impressive, the fact your dad made Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, or that you then made Badass, which was about your dad's making of that film. I mean, I just thought that was such a creative way to do it. That's 2003 now. I feel like it was that's 15 years ago. But what what prompted you to do that? Because it was such a nice homage to your dad and to what was really an important film.
1: Yeah, thank you. I Well, I I just, you know, growing up and experiencing... What my dad went through, you know, you know, by, you know, I didn't always understand the war. I, I witnessed some of the battles and I eventually understood that he was, you know, breaking open a system that was not inclusive. You know, Hollywood is not multi It's more multi culty now, um, for sure. And it's a lot easier to make a film with a mixed crew and go to a, you know, and, and even see mixed people in front of the camera. In fact, going back to armed, um You know, we have, it's a a film with every color, every race in it, but it's not a race-centric movie. It's about people. It's about, you know, gun issues. It's about uh, mental illness, but it's also a kick-ass thriller, and that's the fun of it. So what my father did with Feedback made it easier for filmmakers like myself to get out there and make movies, and then because, because the way I am, I like to mix it up, so I always... I'm pretty much an inclusive filmmaker. But to the experience of me doing badass, was it, it wasn't just that I was putting myself in a similar position to my dad who had directed, acted, um, wrote and produced Sweet Sweet Back's badass song. And I was doing the same thing with my, at, my film later. It was also that I found there was a lot more I had in common with my father than I ever would have thought. And that I was playing my father, and someone else was now playing Mario, or my position on the emotional chessboard, and I was now playing my dad. So in some ways, it was like psychotherapy on celluloid. It was an incredible experience to do that. It was also an incredible experience to play Malcolm X in the film Ali, and I didn't direct it; Michael Mann directed it. So I've got I've I've, I've been able to, to to bring some pretty uh, Compelling characters to the screen, and and it's it's been a it's been a real real good ride.
0: Yeah, before we delve deep into armed seriously, the fact you played Malcolm X. I mean, how how intimidating was that? I mean that I mean Denzel was so great, and of course was so immersed. And then you've got to take on this role, and like you said, you're Michael Mann and Will Smith. There's big time talent, Um but that's a tough challenge to do because it's Malcolm X at a specific point in his life. It was unlike Denzel showing the pure trajectory of him. You're showing Malcolm at a very specific time.
1: Yes, and the thing with that was, you know, my father had interviewed Malcolm when he was in France. I was working with Malcolm's daughter to play her father and humanize him as a father. And my two daughters were playing Malcolm X's daughters. I had also, by that time, done Panther. I really knew the time period. Um, it was intense. I was able to do a lot of research, Uh and and I was, you know, as, as you said, as playing Malcolm at a very specific time, he'd already been to Africa and prayed next to Muslims of all colors and was starting to think that it wasn't your color that was so significant. It's where your heart and spirit were. And so he was no longer staying in his box. He was starting to cross outside and unify. As Dr. King started to cross outside and unify, and we know that when you do that, you you can become uh, a little bit more of a threat so if dr king stays in the <clears throat> baptist church uh he's not a problem but when he links up with rabbis and christians and marches on washington and takes a position on the vietnam war or, or on economics or the poor people's march he becomes more of a threat and they take you out if malcolm starts to think that uh it's uh that that civil rights is in the, in america is really a human rights issue, and is thinking of taking it to the world stage, and going outside the box, you become a threat, and they take you out. Um, <clears throat> so, I I I think there's a power to being inclusive in America. There's a power to not just staying saying, "Oh, I'm just going to watch my Fox News or my CNN, my MSNBC." There's a power to us coming together, and 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 thinking and working as a collective and, and, and seeing our commonalities versus our differences. And that's very important, um, especially right now when we have we, – we seem to be more divided, unfortunately, and that's not that's not always coming from our leadership. <clears throat> so I think that if you make films that can make us think – I'm not saying what we should think, but films that go, whether it's Ali or whether it's Panther or whether it's New Jack City – Um, if you can make things that films that make people think a little bit, that's a good deal, especially, but you got to entertain them first. Like Clint Eastwood said to me, we whip me, beat me, but don't bore me. And, um, I don't think I bore
0: him. It's a great line, man. Good line by Clint. Uh, Armed is certainly an example of that. I love the opening. I don't want to give away from you, but that that first 10 minutes, because you're kind of setting it up. It's very loose, right? Boys having some fun at the barbershop. And then all of a sudden, some tension is there. And stylistically, because you're a director of talent who's done this for so many years, you know how to showcase this. Where did you get... Um, the ideas of how to showcase mental illness, PTSD, that whole sequence, and we go back to it throughout the film when he's uh, struggling with the the bugs and such, but where did you get that idea, Mario, how I'm going to show this visually?
1: Well, I thought, you know, when I was playing with Badass, I thought one of the, the most powerful bits was, you know, because writing is really sort of dull to watch from the outside, but I thought with Badass, if I could take you inside my father's experience as a writer and him channeling, and creating from the inside out it would be it would be a pretty colorful, intense world. And I thought the same thing here with Chief, my character that I play, that if I could take you inside his head, inside his experience, that it would be pretty intense. And so and I was playing with, you know, colors and metaphors and some well the, the little you can see little influences, Apocalypse now is there a little bit, of, uh, deliverance, of course, if you're a Cinephile you'll see some of that, um, as well as some of the 60s stuff. So I wanted to take you inside that experience, but not in a wacky sort of angular, aggressive way, but with a guy who's really trying to be a force for good and do the right thing and and uh, you know really wants to do better. And, and people have come up to me after seeing, we just won the audience award with Armed at the Newark Film Festival, which is all real people. Uh, and people came up and said, I've never seen a, you know, a person, you know, who's not only fighting the outside, but has the internal battles of some mental illness portrayed amicably be, amicably and and, and and some a little bit heroically by a person of color. So that's just something we don't see much of. And I wanted to put it on the screen this is and to... uh, yeah, go ahead. In play a character that was really, you know, at his, in some ways at his wit's end and really, really, really needed help. And, uh, and he gets it.
0: This is a tough question to answer, but I'm just curious the stance on gun control, because at times you're using these very effective montages about gun violence and how it's erupting, and yet uh, there's a lot of guns in the movie. And as you pointed out, it's an action thriller, yet it's not necessarily resulting in bloodshed. I'm just curious, as a filmmaker, what were you trying to explore with the terrain of gun control? What message were you trying to send? What were you trying to um, to accomplish?
1: Well, here's the thing. I, I wanted to, uh, Arm is based. In real narratives, so even the crazy one where the guy has the sword and he's, you know, and people come in thinking he's torturing a woman and it's an accident—that's actually a real story. It was in the paper, in the newspaper. The the story of Charles Ramsey who discovered the little the little girl that had been uh, missing for ten years, you know, locked in the neighbor's uh, basement. That's a real story. The Chris Donner who got in the shootout in Big Bear where our movie ends in Big Bear. is real story. Um, so all these narratives are woven together. So I wasn't really, I was taking real incidents and weaving them together with a character that's pretty, politically pretty neutral. So I wanted the, the main character to be neutral and in the film we have people on all sides of the gun divide, the gun issue. But we all can basically agree on, on one thing. I mean, most of us can and that is Easy access to medication and easy access to weapons of war are kind of, they're a problem. It's a toxic mix. And we can also agree that thoughts and prayers don't seem to be enough to stop these mass shootings. So we have to do more. We have to think a little bit. This is the midterms, after all. Um, So I'm not trying to direct them what to think, but I think it's important to note That all the things that basically happen in the movie either are things that have happened, or that could happen, but they are not outside of the realm of possibility. They are absolutely possible. And as and, and we have now just made this administration has made it easier for people with mental illness to also get weapons of war. I'm a gun owner. I still have my six shooters from my Western posse. I am therefore a gun owner. I'm not on the no fly list, however. And I don't have weapons of war. I don't have an automatic or something that could be shifted into an automatic. So, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm, and I'm not saying what we should. I'm just saying what we need to think. Doing crazy is not just being crazy. It's doing the same thing again and again or not doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Until we behave differently until we do something differently, unfortunately, we'll be normalizing these mass shootings. And it's not something that's common to any other developed country other than ours.
0: Really well said. Last one for you. I think it's amazing that you're still making movies because of the fact you're not doing it with anybody else but yourself. You're writing, you're producing, uh, directing, everything. How are you able to still be an independent filmmaker, still raise funds to make films that obviously you care about and you're putting your own imprint on? An auteur, if you were.
1: It's tricky. It's um, Part of the reason I'm able to do it is that so far I've been lucky and made my money back. If, 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 if I don't make my money back on armed, you'll see me out there saying, you know, with a sign that we'll direct for food or something. (laughs) (laughs) I do like living in my house. Um, but you know, I make, you know, I'm lucky in that I can go off and work for the studios and do other things and make money, uh, that way. And then go off and make them film like armed that I'm compelled to make or a film like Badass or a film like We the Party, the coming of age film I did um, that I care deeply about and feel compelled to make. And so far, they've been films that people have been interested in. So we're getting, like I said, we won the Audience Award with Armed. We're, you know, we've g- gotten some great five-star reviews from real people on iTunes. And those mean a lot. People, people can hit me up on Instagram, Mario Van Peebles on Instagram. And contact me directly. Tell me what you think of the movie, and I encourage that. I like the interaction with people. Um, so you know, part of it is that I I've been doing it for a long time, and I have a good idea of how you know I can speak the language of finance to some degree, and um, and I've been lucky, man, and I get to 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 put it on screen. And like I said, entertain them first. Don't forget. If you want to do, send a message, what's that old thing? You want to send a message, you go to Western Union. I came here with, I'm, I'm here to tell a story, not to send a message. But if in the context of this thriller, you find something that speaks to you, that's what I'm trying to do.
0: A passionate filmmaker and a special filmmaker, Mario Van Peebles, his film is called Armed. It's on iTunes, it's in theaters, it's everywhere VOD. Thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate chatting with us here on Cinephile.
1: Thank you, brother. You yes, great question. <laughs>
0: Streaming suggestions. All right, we haven't done this in a little while. Mark Simon recently asked me for some movies to watch. I said, listen, I, I don't know. Like, I watch movies in the theater. I get screeners sent to me, or I go video on demand. So I don't actually go on these sites. So I figured just to appease Mark Simon and all those who often do this, they go on Netflix, HBO Go, or Amazon Prime. Here are some options for you. Amazon Prime stand-up guys. Al Pacino, Christopher Walken, if you like those guys as much as I do, and Alan Arkin. It's a mildly amusing, caper heist, old guys getting together again. It has its moments. Stand-Up Guys is available. Starship Troopers is also available. Speaking of good B-movies, I knew Passmore gave a pump fist to that one. Check that out as well on Amazon Prime. As far as Netflix is concerned, Cinderella Man. Good Russell Crowe, Paul Giamatti, Ron Howard film. I didn't do nearly as well as I should have. I thought the box office, but I think it's a sweet story about Benjamin Braddock. And, of course, our friend Jeremy Schapp wrote the book, although he wasn't pleased with the film adaptation either. If I lifted my Tom Cruise band, I'd tell you to watch Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's last film about a guy who just cannot get any sort of release. I think it's beautifully shot. has many memorable moments. Fidelio, remove your clothes. If not, we'll remove them for you. Sidney Pollock is terrific in the movie as well. I'll get you. You like that scotch? It's 100-year-old scotch. I'll send you a case of it right now. I swear there's a lot of moments that I find particularly memorable. Of course, I can't watch it again, though. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the classic book, was not well-reviewed as a movie. I think it's better than the critics gave it credit for. It came out in 1998, 20th anniversary of Johnny Depp playing Hunter S. Thompson. I think it is a real head trip, and imagine if I was high as a kite, I'd like it even more because I can understand some of it, but very hallucinogenic. I think it's really funny. I love the chemistry between Depp and Benicio Del Toro. If you've never seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, check it out. Let me know what you think. And Freaks and Geeks, I think one of the great TV shows of all time. Only lasted one season, but it had so much talent. Judd Apatow was part of the talent behind it, along with Paul Fagg. It stars James Franco, Busy Phillips, uh, Seth Rogen, many others, uh, Linda Cardellini. Really great show. I think it's one of the best shows ever about high school. That and my so-called life. If you've never seen Freaks and Geeks, uh, check out season one currently on Netflix. And lastly, Menace to Society was talking a lot about New Jack City. So there's another gangster movie from the 90s, uh, Menace to Society. Terrific film. I think it's often a good companion there with Boys in the Hood if you watch those back-to-back. And on HBO Go, analyze that. I would skip that one. I'll analyze this. I think it's a great comedy. Analyze that, the inferior sequel. The Cooler, which is one of those movies which nobody has seen. But if you like Alec Baldwin as much as I do, check out The Cooler. It's his only Oscar nomination. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for an Academy Award for his performance as a Vegas Heavy who's got heart but also humanity. Also stars William H. Macy and Mario Bello. Good indie movie. Came out in 2003. I don't know why anybody would want to watch this, but Dances with Wolves, extended version, an extended version of Dances with Wolves, currently available on HBO Go. Also, Inherent Vice, a rare miss from a man, Paul Thomas Anderson. I think it's his weakest film. I know there are some acolytes to the movie who tell me with repeated viewing it gets better. I'll tell you, the one viewing I had was not good, although Martin Short is scene-stealing. I did really like Josh Boland's performance. Unfortunately, the story was just far too unwieldy for my tastes. Speaking of disappointing movies, how about Public Enemies? When's the last time you thought about that? Johnny Depp, Michael Mann movie. That was disappointing as well. And The Thin Red Line. We talked a lot about Platoon with Tom Berenger. Another great war film. The Thin Red Line, shot by Terrence Malick, came out in 1998. That's currently available on HBO Go. When a film critic and director don't see eye to eye, Rick Passmore goes in defense of...
2: With Mandy on the brain, I decided to reconnect with another revenge story from 2004 to see if it still holds up. Well, The Punisher, starring Thomas Jane and John Travolta, absolutely does, and it certainly deserves better than its abysmal 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. Jane plays Frank Castle, a former Delta Force op and FBI agent whose family is brutally murdered by the hands of Howard Saint, played by Travolta. The reason? Retribution for the death of Saint's son during an FBI raid led by Castle. After an all-out assault on his family reunion, Frank Castle is the sole survivor, and after a period of recovery and non-action by the FBI to capture Saint, he decides he must now exact his revenge. Castle holds up in a dilapidated warehouse apartment neighboring a couple of social outcasts, Dave and Bumpo, Ben Foster and the late great comedian John Panette, and an attractive but emotionally scarred waitress named Joan, played by Rebecca Romaine. As Castle quietly builds his arsenal and loudly soups up his 69 GTO, he disregards his neighbors until an attack on Dave by Jones X, which Frank quickly and mildly violently defuses. While this is just Frank doing the right thing, he still wishes to be isolated from the group, who now have a fondness for their mysterious hero. The term eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, certainly does not apply here, as Saint sends Hitman to finish the job on Castle, which continue to fail. Castle gains information on Saint after interrogating the family gopher Mickey in a comical scene pulled straight from the Punisher Warzone comics involving a blowtorch, a pork chop, and a popsicle. Using this info, he begins to destroy Howard Saint's business deals, legal and otherwise, and affect the trust of his best friend and right-hand man Quinton and wife Livia, who initially ordered the hit on Castle. Most people now connect the character of Frank Castle to John Bernthal, and the Marvel Netflix universe, fantastic series, The Punisher, um, on Netflix. When compared to its serialized counterpart, the film looks sillier and more jovial, thanks in part to some fantastic overacting by Travolta and textbook brooding from Jane. Yet there's a lot to enjoy about this movie. As the carnage continues the ramp, themes of family and purpose flow throughout, and while Castle continues to fight his nightmares, he drowns him in wild turkey, he also has a purpose in exacting his revenge. The campiness of the mid-2000s action films are joyfully nostalgic now, and The Punisher finally strikes balance between humor and sincerity. The biggest issue, much like Mandy, is the length it takes to get to the revenge. But unlike Mandy, there's a lot of narrative to digest in that first hour. In the end, The Punisher may not be as well done as its Netflix series counterpart, but its rewatchability really holds up.
0: Wow, The Punisher. Well, in terms of revenge flicks, that's, that's what we feel. Like. People should tweet us, cinephile ESPN, your favorite revenge flicks. Because what else do you think goes along? I mean, listen, you get a lot of action movies, that are always revenge movies. Yeah, action Dirty movies. Harry's and such. Yeah, I'm
2: going to go Double Jeopardy with Ashley <laughs> yeah. Judd. Love double. I love that call. It's a great call for the Everyman. Double Jeopardy. Tommy we're Lee sure. Jones, Bruce Greenwood, fantastic.
0: <laughs> I knew you're a big John Pennett fan.
2: Love his comedy. Yeah, late yeah. great John fan.
0: Uh, thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. As always, appreciate Mario Van Peebles, our man Carlton Gillespie hooking us up with him, Lion's Dan Rick Passmore, Dan Stanzik, and Adnan Burke. Next time on Cinephile, Ty Burr, Boston Globe film critic, as well as reviews of Robert Redford's last film, The Old Man and the Gun, and Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga's new film, A Star is Born. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke movie podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.